This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, I'm Kieran Quinn, your host. We are joined again by one of our favorite co-hosts, Dr. Paxton Back, out at the University of British Columbia. Paxton, welcome back on the show. Oh, thanks, Kieran. Happy to be back. Well, listeners, it's arrhythmia week. We're going to talk about ICDs, or intracardiac defibrillators, in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, and the caffeine jitters. Paxton, take it away. So uh, I chose an article out of JAMA Internal Medicine published just in October uh, entitled Short-Term Effects of High-Dose Caffeine on Cardiac Arrhythmias in Patient with Heart Failure, a Randomized Clinical Trial. This is a paper uh, that comes out of Brazil by the first author Priscilla Zucanali out of Porto Alegre, Brazil. Tantalizing. So Paxson, what is the bottom line for this article? So it's, it's quite interesting. This article is looking at uh, the effects of caffeine on arrhythmias uh, in patients with decreased ejection fraction. So the bottom line here is that in patients that they consider at high risk for arrhythmias, that is patients with heart failure with decreased ejection fraction, caffeine does not have any effect, uh, at least in the short term, on risk of arrhythmias. So take us through how they, they address that, uh, that question. Yeah, so this is a, a fairly straightforward study to read. Um, as is included in the title, it is a randomized clinical trial. It was done out of a single center in Brazil. It's fairly small, but still offers some, some interesting results. Okay, so Paxton, who were the patients then in this single center study? Yeah, so they, they had a fairly small population of patients that they enrolled, and their enrollment criteria were primarily a previous diagnosis of heart failure with an EF of less than 45%. They included patients of NYHA class 1 to 3, so those a fairly broad range of, of, symptom, of symptoms. And interestingly, they changed their inclusion criteria partway through the trial. Initially, it was mandatory to have an ICD in place, and that was done for safety reasons. So the first 25 patients who enrolled all had an ICD. After an initial analysis, they decided it was safe to proceed, and, and they then enrolled a, a second 26 patients with the same criteria, but these ones did not have an ICD in place. Hmm. I guess that already speaks to some of the safety of the trial that they were doing. So what was the intervention uh, that they actually ended up putting these patients through? What they did was they, they took the patients all on one day to their center and they provided them with caffeine. Uh, and they did this in a, in a fairly clever way, I thought. They took decaffeinated coffee and then they reintroduced caffeine into the decaffeinated coffee for half of the group and they, um, they introduced a placebo for the other half. So they divided the patients in two. They did a seven-day washout first off um, with no caffeine whatsoever because many of these patients are habitual coffee drinkers. And they then provided half of the group with this recaffeinated decaf coffee and the other half with decaf coffee including placebo. They got basically the equivalent of one cup of coffee's worth of caffeine per hour for five hours. And they were monitored throughout that time for any uh, signs of arrhythmias, including uh, extra atrial beats, ventricular beats, non-sustained ventricular arrhythmias, shocks, etc. Uh, at the end of the five hours, they then took these patients and they actually put them on treadmills and they, they exercised them on a treadmill to see if even after five cups of coffee over five hours, they could then induce any arrhythmias through exercise. So following all of this, they then proceeded through another seven-day washout period, uh, and they were brought back, and the groups were reversed. So they actually did, they included a crossover design in their, in their model. So those who did not get the caffeine in the first week ended up receiving the caffeine the second week, and they ran them through the same, the same experiment one more time, including the treadmill at the end of that. So of all those different types of arrhythmias they were looking at, what was the primary outcome uh, that they were really interested in? Mm -hmm. So the primary outcome that they were looking at was the number and percentage of ventricular and supraventricular premature beats um, as assessed by the, the continuous ECG monitoring. 
and that, and that was a composite outcome. They then assessed that based on a number of different uh, subgroups, but um, their, their composite outcome was overall any evidence of arrhythmia. My God. So you are a heavy coffee drinker, then you have to go into a seven-day withdrawal, then you come in and then you drink a whole bunch more coffee potentially, and then you get monitored for several hours to see. And then you, got, you get on a treadmill and you get run for a while, and then you're going to see if you're going to have arrhythmias. That sounds like a terrible experiment. Yeah, some of them may have been cranky uh, uh, in the in the lead up to it, but um, they got they got sufficiently caffeinated throughout the experiment. So I hope they ended up happy. Okay, so very interesting. Take us through the some of the details of the study. Get put a little sh- granular sugar in this coffee and tell us what the details are. As mentioned, in that composite outcome of all supraventricular as well as ventricular extra beats, they found no increase in PVCs or PACs in these quote-unquote high-risk patients or amongst any other subgroups for that matter. They ended up seeing a medium of, of 185 versus 239 ventricular premature beats, so a fairly small amount, and almost no uh, superventricular premature beats. That was actually six versus six on average per patient. Surprisingly, a fair number of these patients, or maybe not surprisingly, did have an episode, at least one episode of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. So that was 34% in the caffeinated patients versus 40% in the non-caffeinated patients. But none of, in none of these situations where any shocks delivered. They did look at a bunch of subgroups and and they do acknowledge that their numbers were low, but um, based on the etiology of the cardiomyopathy, so ischemic versus non-ischemic, based on other medications on board like beta blockers, amiodarone, digoxin, based on their habitual coffee habits, whether they they are habitual drinkers or not, um, they also found no difference in those groups. Uh, and they did. They looked at a number of other measurements. They tried stratifying by achieved caffeine levels in these patients and actually measuring the caffeine levels in their blood at the end. Again, no difference. And then when it comes down, came down to the treadmill itself, they also saw no difference in the exercise tolerance there. In fact, they found no difference in just about anything. No difference in mean heart rates, no difference in mean BNP levels, or really nothing at all except for the peak systolic and diastolic pressures uh, with exercise in the caffeinated group were about 10 points higher. And that was the only, the only change that they saw with this fairly significant caffeine load. So I think I have to ask the obvious question, the elephant in the room, with a small trial such as this that finds no difference in the groups, was the trial adequately powered to be able to detect this difference or they just didn't have enough patience overall to to actually confidently say one way or the other whether there was a difference or not? Yeah, and, and you're right. That is that is the, the, the proverbial elephant in the room. This is a small trial. And so especially when you're getting into subgroup analyses, they, they do acknowledge outright that they're really not powered for those kind of things. But that wasn't what this study was designed to uh, achieve. Um, but they did uh, do power calculations to uh, achieve a certain uh, difference between uh, between numbers of, of uh, arrhythmias in their composite outcome. And they, are, they were able to confidently state that uh, within the confines of that, those power our um, calculations, they did um, meet their cutoff. Great. Um, were there any other interesting points or observations that you wanted to make about this particular trial? I mean, first off, I, I kind of liked it just because it, it answers a, a very practical question that I've had patients ask me before, and I've honestly had no real uh, answer for. But what I what I kind of liked in reading this was... was um, how simple and straightforward it was. I, I admit when I initially read the title, I was curious how they managed to accomplish this and still uh, do it in an, in an ethically uh, sound way. But I think in starting their trial with patients with ICDs, um, you know, they certainly 
took some precautions. Uh, and then doing the, doing the crossover design is, is great. That really sort of adds some strength to a, to a small study, I think, and helps me believe in some of these results. Talking about believing in the results, um, anything important as far as limitations that you wanted to bring up? I think you've already hit on the big one, and that is, and that is, it's a small trial done in one center with fifty patients. You have to take it with a grain of salt. A few other things that are that are worth bearing in mind is that this only represents one group of of high risk arrhythmia patients. We know that 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 patients with cardiomyopathies are at high risk for for arrhythmias, and and that's why we do things like put in ICDs, and we'll get into that in your trial. Um, but they're not the only ones. So patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation or flutter with reentrant tachycardias, you know, this we really really can't apply these results to to those other forms of, of common arrhythmias. Keeping that in mind, who does this study then truly apply to? So they do look like a patient that I recognize. They look familiar to me. Their average patient was a, was a 60-year-old, primarily male. 75 of them were male. 75%, sorry. 80% were Caucasian. Interestingly, only 33% of them actually had ischemic cardiomyopathies. So two-thirds of these were, were, were non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. And that probably represents the kind of patients they're seeing in this heart failure center rather than sort of in the community hospitals. Um, but still, a third of them did have ischemic cardiomyopathies. They were primarily of NYHA class 1 to 2, so not particularly symptomatic. And they were generally on pretty good uh, heart failure medications. 98% of them were on a beta blocker. 97% of them on an ACE inhibitor. So again, a, a patient that I think I recognize uh, from our both our outpatient clinics as well as in the hospital. They did have a fair amount of them on digoxin, probably more than I'm used to seeing. Half of them were on digoxin. But aside from that, these are, these are definitely, um, I think, pretty applicable to my day-to-day. Just for our listeners, uh, bring them back. What are the main? What's the main takeaway here? So going back to the bottom line is so is that at least on a single day that moderate caffeine intake is really unlikely to increase the risk of significant arrhythmias in uh, patients that uh, have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction who are already on good medical management. And I think it is important to note that most of these patients are on beta blockers. These authors began by doing a meta-analysis on what the effects of, uh, of caffeine were on arrhythmias, and they were quite disappointed with the quality of data out there. There's some animal data that suggested it was uh, pro-arrhythmic and human data that suggested maybe otherwise, but they were all old studies, so they said, they threw their hands in the air and said, we'll do it then. We'll do, we'll do the study ourselves if it wasn't there. So their bottom line is that moderate caffeine intake is, is probably okay. The greatest ideas are sometimes spawned in this way, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I feel reassured with the moderate caffeine that I intake on a daily basis and maybe a little worried sometimes about the extra caffeine I take while I'm on call. Well, I'm going to take a, uh, a Danish with my cup of coffee for our next article, which is entitled Defibrillator Implantation in Patients with Non-Ischemic Systolic Heart Failure by Lars Kober and then published in the New England Journal of Medicine September 29th. It is called the Danish trial, hence the intended pun to lead it off. God, you are getting good at those puns, Kieran. So, tell me then, uh, this trial, what is the what is the bottom line here? What's the main message from this article? So this is a multi-center, unblinded, randomized control trial of about 1,100 patients with non-ischemic uh, but symptomatic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, less than or equal to 35%, who were randomized to have implantable cardio defibrillators for primary prophylaxis. And uh, there was no overall difference in the reduction of all-cause uh, death in, uh, in these patients who received these ICDs. That is interesting. It is no small thing to get an ICD. Mm-hmm. It's not cheap either. 
Yeah. So tell me a little bit more then about why you why you chose this particular article. This really comes from an interest in the greater context of the what we understand about ICDs. So certainly we know the benefit of these ICDs in patients with symptomatic systolic heart failure that's ischemic in nature, that's caused by coronary artery disease, is well documented. And this is a class 1A indication on the American Heart Association guidelines. And there's lots of really good studies that demonstrate their benefit. But the benefit of prophylactic ICDs in patients in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is really all based on subgroup analyses of these bigger trials uh, that have been done previously. So we really don't know the benefit uh, in a rigorous way. Um, they do get a class 1B indication in the guidelines, but, but we're not actually sure of their benefit. So I thought this was an interesting way to uh, trial that addressed that, uh, that question. I, that's that's very interesting. They really are different diseases, so it's interesting that we just lump them together like that. Okay, so then let's uh, let's get into the details here. So tell me a little bit more about uh, the design of this study. So this study was a multi-center randomized controlled trial. It was conducted in Denmark, hence the Danish title, uh, between February of 2008 and June 2014. And there was a median follow-up for these patients of five and a half years. Now, it was unblinded. You can't really placebo put an ICD in somebody, but the outcomes were adjudicated in a blinded fashion. So the people who were determining, uh, you know, death in an individual or not didn't know if that individual had an ICD or not. You know, it's important to point out any time that uh, trials are industry funded. So the device companies funded this trial, multiple uh, device companies. But uh, it's made very, very clear in the methodology that, that these companies were not allowed to have any involvement in the design, conduction, analysis, or publication of the trial itself. They just provided funding to conduct the trial. And I, so I think that's fair. Yeah, it's sort of a, often a necessary evil I think we have to, we have to accept. Uh, so, so tell me a little bit more about the, uh, the patients that were actually included or were being enrolled in this trial. So, um, as I mentioned, you, you had to be symptomatic with your heart failure, and that was uh, an NYHA class 2 to 4. You had to have an ejection fraction that was less than or equal to 35%, and it had to be non-ischemic in nature. And then you also had to have an elevated NT pro BNP of greater than 200. Um, and all of these decisions about an ICD implantation were made after your chronic heart failure therapy was maximized. And I think it's also important to point out, so these patients did not have to be free of coronary disease. They could have coexistent coronary disease. They just weren't allowed to have significant lesions as the cause for their cardiomyopathy. And then their key exclusions really came down to patients. If you had atrial fibrillation and your heart rate was consistently over 100 beats per minute, uncontrolled atrial fibrillation, you were excluded. Or if you were on hemodialysis due to end-stage renal disease, you were excluded from this study. So they included about 1,100 patients uh, initially who were eligible for randomization. And as I mentioned, you're randomized to whether you're going to get a CRT or not. So just over 600 patients had indications for CRT. And then you split that in two, basically, and you get about 300 in each arm that's going to receive an ICD or not. Um, and then on the other side, the patients who did not have an indication for CRT, you had about 470 of those. So it boils down to just over 200 in each group, whether they received an ICD or not. So overall, patients who get an ICD is just about 512. Um, and patients who do not get an ICD uh, is uh, 533. So you already, uh, you already sort of mentioned this, but, but uh, just to state it outright, their intervention was what? 
So their intervention was the implantation of an ICD, and this was actually randomized by the center, since it's a multi-center trial, so you know, you, you were at, the center you were at, you were randomized to. Um, and also if the patients were planned to have a CRT, a cardiac resynchronization therapy uh, implanted as well. So the, the sort of simple way to put it is you had two arms where some patients were not going to get CR, CRTs and they were randomized to get an ICD or not by the center, or you had patients who were known going to be getting a CRT and they added an extra lead for the ICD if they were to get that or they were randomized to not receive an ICD, if that makes sense. I'm glad to see that in there because uh, I don't know what your experience is, but I see more and more people getting CRTD devices these days and, and bypassing the, the ICD. So I'm glad to see that group was considered. Yeah, I think it's an important consideration too. Um, and then what they did was they followed these patients uh, at two months after their implantation and then every six months thereafter to adjudicate their outcomes and other complications that they might have had. Okay, so pretty close follow-up. Just again to restate, what exactly was their primary outcome? What was the, what was the big question? The reason that this ends up being a negative trial is because their primary outcome was actually death from any cause. And then their secondary outcomes were looking at sudden cardiac death, other cardiovascular death, resuscitated cardiac arrest, or sustained ventricular tachycardia, as well as a change in baseline from your quality of life. Um, and then they also had a safety outcome that was pre-specified that looked at the rates of device infection uh, between the two groups. Okay, interesting. Let's get into the results and tell, tell us about what they actually found here. Right, so looking at their primary outcome, death from any cause occurred in 120 patients in the ICD arm. Um, that was 21, about 22% of, of patients. And in 131 patients, or about 23% in the control group just around one to one and a half percent difference between the groups was non-significant. Then they looked at the sudden cardiac death secondary outcome, and that occurred in 24 patients, um, which is about 4% in the ICD group, and in 46 patients, or about 8% in the control group. So you have a you know an absolute difference there of 4%, and that is a significant difference. So there's a significant difference in the rate of sudden cardiac death between the two groups. And then finally, when we get to our safety uh, outcome, uh, device infection occurred in 27 patients, or about 5% in the ICD group, um, and in only uh, 20 patients, or about 3.5% in the control group. And this actually was not a significant difference between the two, uh, the two groups, albeit there's a slightly trend to higher uh, rates of infection in the ICD group. The question that I have then is, if there was a difference in uh, cardiac death, but nothing in the composite outcome, what's making up that difference? Where are these patients, where are we losing these patients? Did they capture that? So unfortunately, Paxton, they don't actually report the cause of death uh, in the paper or in their supplementary material um, for the patient uh, that's making up the difference between, you know, why they're dying versus they're dying of cardiovascular death. So we just have to accept that it's uh, some other cause that's unrelated to your cardiovascular system. Okay, so that's all very fascinating, Kieran, and I'm not quite sure what to make of, uh, of some of it. Um, any interesting points or highlights that you wanted to, to, to mention here? Anything that caught your eye? There is a couple very important things to understand. So overall, even the trialists were surprised about the low rates of death uh, in this trial that compared to what they would what they would see in people with ischemic cardiomyopathy. The, the result of that is they actually had to recruit more patients 
to be able to ensure that they were um, adequately powered to detect differences between the two. Now, they think that the reason that the, um, the rates of death were so much lower than expected is because in our modern day treatment regimen, their patients were very aggressively treated with medications. Um, and we know the effects and reductions in mortality that those med- medications have. Now, you could uh, make an argument that generalizability is a bit threatened in this study because maybe maybe your patients don't come to you so well-managed on all of the different medications as they are in this trial, but uh, it was uh, something interesting that you have a low event rate, so you're, you're not necessarily making a huge impact with an ICD when your overall risk is not as high as you would expect. The other thing I think that's really important that I wanted to bring up was, you know, I think that this trial really gets at identifying the appropriate patient for an ICD. About a third of the deaths were attributed to non-cardiovascular causes in this trial. That wouldn't be surprising if your population was really elderly because, you know, they have a lot of comorbidities. But, you know, if you think about the consequences, you know, of fatal arrhythmia in a 95-year-old, it might not be a bad way to die. Um, to be perfectly honest, you know, sudden cardiac death, quick and painless. But in a young, you know, 51-year-old woman who has children um, and is still working, then if you can prevent that kind of a death, it's potentially of great importance. I think you really need to sort of step back and ask yourself two questions from this trial about your patients. What is their overall risk of sudden cardiac death versus what is their overall risk of other types of death? that might happen to them. And then secondly, you know, how is this patient going to die if they are going to die and, uh, and thinking about, you know, the different ways uh, that we can die as humans um, and talking to your patients about that. Does that make sense, Paxton, what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's a pretty nuanced interpretation here, but that's intuitive, right? That younger patients um, are potentially going to have a greater sort of bang for your buck um, in terms of, uh, their benefit from this sort of intervention. You know, just to round things out, typical patient in this study to apply these types of results to, you have a 64-year-old male with uh, NYHA class 2 to 3 with idiopathic non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, well-controlled uh, on an ACE inhibitor, a beta blocker, two-thirds are on a mineral mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist like spironolactone or plerinone. Very few come to them with pre-existing CRT devices, but most of them end up qualifying to get CRT as well. So that's sort of your typical patient that might present, and you're going to ask yourself whether you want to put an ICD or refer to somebody to put an ICD in this patient or not. Bearing that in mind, then, that's a patient that I think that you and I both both face fairly frequently. What is the main learning point here, and, and how is that going to affect the way that you approach that patient in the future? Yeah, so the main learning point is that implantation of an ICD for primary prophylaxis in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and LV function less than 35%, there is no reduction in death from any cause, but there is a reduction in death from sudden cardiac death. And, uh, you know, again, that just highlights the need to sort of select your patients carefully and try to decide who is at the highest risk for sudden cardiac death, which is really what the ICD is designed to treat and reduce, right? Not necessarily all cause death in this case. And then the last thing I just wanted to make as a quick side point, ICDs are not cheap. So I phoned a friend uh, who, who puts these devices in there in Canada, about $35,000 a device, plus the costs of, you know, putting them in in the lab, etc. So not a cheap 
toy, so to speak, to be putting in uh, in somebody for reasons, but definitely an important one in the right patient. Hmm. Not to mention a lot of these non-ischemic cardiomyopathy patients are, are younger and may need uh, diet device changes over the lifespan too. Exactly. All right, Paxton, well, thank you for a robust and interesting discussion this week. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show, the good stuff uh, segment, where we're talking about things that we're reading about. Paxton, what's interesting you this week? Oh, thanks, Kieran. I get to say this is my favorite part too now. I was reading something quite interesting uh, recently. So as, as you know, I, I have a particular interest in, in, in HIV and, and addictions and that sort of population. And I was reading a, uh, an article in, in, in the newspaper recently around the story of the original patient zero. So I ask you, Kieran, do you know where the term patient zero comes from? I'm going to be honest to our listeners. I read, uh, I read a similar article, so I know now, but I didn't know before this, artic- before this article came out. So tell us. Ah, you're so honest. I always just sort of assumed that it was an epidemiologic term. It sounds pretty cool. Um, I thought it was. I thought it was uh, just another another term for an index case. But it's actually come out of the HIV epidemic, uh, and it comes from the story of a man named Gaetan Dugas. Gaetan Dugas was a was a Quebecer actually. He was a, um, a steward on an airline, and he was famously promiscuous. Gaetan Dugas became infamous for being labeled the patient zero of the North American HIV outbreak. And he's actually where the term patient zero came from. Oh, back when the, the these doctors in California were trying to figure out what was going on and why all these patients of theirs were dying, um, they were tracking uh, cases and trying to um, establish relationships between these cases. And uh, one patient kept coming up over and over and over again. Uh, at the time, he was labeled patient O, which stood for out of California, but along the way, somebody misread it as patient zero and the term sort of stuck. Gaetan Dugas was labeled in the, in the eighties as being the, um, sort of the, 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 the typhoid Mary of the HIV epidemic. And, uh, uh unfortunately he died several years before, uh, before he became infamous and was never able to, to, uh, defend himself. The reason that I'm telling this story is that uh, more recently, some researchers down south have uh, used the wizardry of, of genetics to, to disprove this story of patient zero. They um, took old blood samples and to sequence this old DNA and actually found that HIV probably crossed over into North America at least 10 years before that, somewhere in the early 70s, and in all likelihood has come more than once. And suggest that, yeah, he was... Um, he was one of these early diagnoses and certainly um, was at the heart of this spread that was uh, discovered in the early 80s. But to call him um, the originator of the of the epidemic is uh, is probably unfair. Maybe 25 years too late, but uh, a little bit of indication for Mr. Dugas. Yeah, well, it's at least nice to know, nice to know that, uh, posthumously at least, that his name has been cleared in that regard. Well, my, uh, my article I chose is relevant to the the whole show, uh, the rounds table that we do, and which is a lot of placebo-controlled trials that we look at. So this one is entitled Placebo Control. Now tell me, Paxton, do you ever push uh, one of the following? Uh, the door close button on an elevator, a crosswalk signal at, uh, at a light, or have you ever tried to adjust uh, a thermostat in your office because it was cold or too warm? Kieran, I can't stay still for a second. I do all of those things on a regular basis. 
let's talk let's break them down really quickly so the elevator buttons in the 1990s in the united states the americans with disability act was brought in and it mandated that that closed door feature be removed from the national elevator uh, industry because they wanted to ensure that anybody who used crutches canes or a wheelchair had time to get on board um, and weren't crushed in a closing door by an inpatient uh, passenger such as you or me. The crosswalk signals in New York, for example, were taken out in 2004. The city deactivated them uh, because there's better computer-controlled traffic signaling now. But the cost of removing all of those buttons across the city of New York was going to cost over a million dollars. So they just decided, eh, just leave them there and let people push them uh, without even knowing and they're not really doing anything. Um, and then lastly, office thermostats, a lot of actually office managers will put in a fake office thermostat to uh, give their employees the semblance of control over the temperature when it's not connected to anything at all, which would explain why your temperature in your office never changes when you're trying to mess around with the office thermostat. Now, how does this relate to anything to do with medicine? Well, there's a psychology professor at Harvard University named Dr. Alan Langer who studies the illusion of control and just talks about the perceived control is very important because it diminishes stress and it promotes well-being. Um, whereas if you have a perceived lack of control, it's associated with um, depression. So perhaps leaving that elevator button in place or your, your crosswalk button uh, uh, non-functioning but present somehow gives our greater population a sense of control um, and reduces their overall stress uh, in some way. And it's certainly a stressful world out there. I, I feel cheated. <laughs> so did I after reading this article. Well, I certainly don't feel cheated from this episode though, Paxson, because I had a great time and thank you so much for joining us. We hope you come back soon uh, and thank you listeners for tuning in. We'll, we'll talk to you next week. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.